The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of St. Louis in Tune. St. Louis in Tune focuses on issues that impact and connect the greater St. Louis area. Our topics include the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, and justice. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been discussing the monument controversy and what's been going on related to monuments in general. Also, on the second half of the show, we're going to have Dr. Warren Rosenblum from Webster University on to talk about monuments and memorials in a historic perspective. But on the line right now, we have Brian Palmer, who is a Peabody Award-winning journalist, and Brian wrote a great article that I read in the Smithsonian Magazine. Uh, Just to kind of give you a background about him, he's based in Richmond, Virginia. His photos have appeared in the New York Times, BuzzFeed. His writing has appeared in Smithsonian, the New York Times, and The Nation, and Audio on Reveal. He was a CNN correspondent, also the Beijing bureau chief for U.S. News and World Report, But his uh, collaboration with uh, Seth Wessler is where he received the Peabody for the Reveal Radio story of monumental lies, and we want to talk with him about that today. Brian, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Thank you, Arnold and Mark, for having me. So I I was fascinated by your article and uh, that you did with Seth, and wanted you to give a little background on how you approach this, uh, because I know you went to a variety of sites. You did research, as, as any good journalist will do, and you formulated some uh, ideas, and uh, ho- hopefully things will be discussed based upon your article. I know you've gotten a lot of feedback, and this isn't just recently. You, you did this, uh, what, about a year and a, year and a half ago? Exactly, yeah. It was late in 2018. I think what's, what's really interesting to me is where the story started, for both Seth and um, for me. Seth and I had collaborated on projects a long time ago, but Seth was actually looking into uh, historic, neglected American cemetery, not not far from where y'all are right now um, in St. Louis. And I was doing work at neglected historic black cemeteries here in Virginia. And what we learned was that tremendous amounts of money, or in some cases not tremendous, but money nonetheless, uh, public funds were going to subsidize Confederate sites, cemeteries, and monuments, and these important African-American sites that were getting overgrown, these burial grounds, were receiving nothing from states. And that was particularly pronounced here in Virginia, where we have perhaps the most robust uh, affirmative action program for the Confederacy. Uh, millions of dollars over the past hundreds, uh, hundred year, uh, hundred plus years uh, have gone to subsidize, subsidize Confederate cemeteries and sites and monuments and uh, pseudo uh, museums. And that's not just Virginia, that's Mississippi, that's Alabama. It's all across the South. So our thinking was, I think, uh, we, we understood that what these sites represented, and this is through research, not just through what's coming out of our gut. This was research that said that these sites 
represented, depicted mythology and ideology. They were not rooted in history per se, or at least an honest recitation or presentation of what history was. These monuments went up at a time where African Americans were being stripped of their 15th Amendment rights, the ability to participate in the electoral process. So when you think about that, the decisions to invest in these sites were made precisely at the moment, and, and often by the same people who were stripping African Americans of their ability to participate in the democratic process. So cut to 2020, and you have people talking about, well, you know, these these monuments represent all of us, and uh, citizens put them there. No, uh, citizens did not put them there. Particular citizens overrode the rights of others in order to put them there. When the legislatures and county supervisors and city councils passed laws to fund these places 90, 100 years ago, those laws stayed on the books. Some have been shaved away or um, slowly done away with. But many of them are, are, are still on the books. And that like, for, for example, here in Virginia, Confederate cemeteries, whether public or private, get a certain amount of money every year. So one could say, well, gosh, you know, it's just a cemetery. But if you think about it, that money has been given over m- more than 100 years. Uh, my wife went through all the acts of assembly since 1902 and uh, towed it up uh, with additional data, data uh, that about $9 million had gone to state state dollars had gone to subsidizing Confederate cemeteries uh, and zero dollars had gone to the cemeteries of uh, the people the Confederacy sought to enslave. So it's the gift that That's keeps terrible. on giving. Even if you don't, even if you don't deserve the money, if, uh, sorry, not deserve, need, because a lot of these places are pristine. Even if you don't need that money, you can get it and you can reinvest it. You can do whatever. And that's what's happened. You know, over time, various cemeteries like Hollywood Cemetery here in 1914, they got $8,000 from the General Assembly. Well, $8,000 doesn't sound like that much, but in 1914, that was about $190,000 that you could sock away and get that compound interest, yo. So, uh, you know, the, right. the laws are on the books because people put them there. They have to get taken off the books because people feel that there's something wrong. The problem there is we have enough people who have bought into that old lost cause mythology that heritage, not hate mythology, that they pose obstacles to that. And I think if we can confront the actual evidence of how the monuments got there and what they were deployed to erase, namely stories of black resilience and achievement and existence in humanity and individuality, then we can have a reckoning. But we can't get rid of those laws until people realize, holy heck, we're subsidizing a toxic, carcinogenic lie, and we got to stop that. Well, and when it becomes part of the culture and ingrained in the fabric, it's very difficult to yeah. get that, that oh, yeah. stain out, that dirt out. Uh, it, it really takes a concerted effort to uh, continually have a focus on this to change hearts. We talked about, you know, it, it's difficult to change the hearts of people. They're going to believe what they want to believe. 
And unless it hits them personally, either uh, through their family or in their pocketbook or something else, many people are not going to, to change. Now, was that cemetery here in St. Louis, the Father Dixon Cemetery? I don't think so. Um, I, I'm, I, I don't want to venture a name uh, because I don't remember entirely, but I don't think that was it. Because that, that actually is not far from our studio here, and uh, it is. we've had uh, Ernest Jordan on, who's, I would guess, the caretaker of that cemetery, and there are monthly cleanups, and you're exactly right. It is a historic black cemetery from um, uh, Moses uh, Dixon, who was very prevalent in helping in the Freedmen's Bureau and and uh, making sure that there were uh, individuals coming out of slavery who had some kind of place to stay and food and, and taking care of them. And, and that particular cemetery is, is not funded at all, and it's uh, totally a volunteer uh, donation kind of cemetery to take care of. So I, I, that, that's a whole other, other um, conversation, but I, f- I find that one interesting also because many black cemeteries have been overrun or neglected exactly uh and uh, so what i'm if i sound slightly distracted it's because i'm opening up my googler and uh trying to find the name of uh the cemetery that seth worked in uh greenwood cemetery okay yes and uh i think that's st louis is that st louis county i believe so and i believe that's actually where uh, harriet scott is buried okay but but think about that for a second. So you were able to instantly cite a neglected black cemetery. It was different from the one that, that Seth worked, worked on and, and I was referring to. There are thousands of these sites that contain just a tremendous amount of suppressed and nearly erased history. So when people are talking about we need context for these Confederate monuments, we don't need context. The context is these sites, these places that this fake history was deployed in order to atomize and erase. So these neglected sites, which have ceased to matter to so many people, are outdoor archives of the American experience. You can say African-American experience. I would say the American experience, because if you understand how these sites got into that condition, and if you understand who was buried there, and if you understand the communities that they built and what they did to fight Jim Crow, you got a whole lot of context that I think can destroy this lost cause silliness. That's where I'm coming from. Would you define that lost cause? I, I know we've, we've had conversations about that uh, because that, when, when you, uh, it has like three or four points to it. But as you have approached going to some of these sites in the South, it seems like it continues to be perpetuated in in tours and what tour guides are saying and some of the, my words, memorabilia that is displayed in uh, gift shops and the whole nine yards down there, especially like in Jefferson Davis's house and, and things like that. So, yes. In a word, yes. But I would draw an even larger circle around that. So, the Lost Cause was an ideological movement that was initiated by a guy named Edward A. Pollard, uh, really on the heels of the Civil War. And it was basically to turn a military victory into, into a social, cultural, political, and economic, sorry, a military defeat into a social, cultural, political, economic victory, meaning that if 
your goal was to retain white the, the myth and the actuality of white supremacy in terms of uh, the, the, the status of white Americans versus African Americans in the society, then you needed oh. a pretty powerful set of myths that said, well, uh, we didn't lose the war on the battlefield because of uh, any any moral problems with our cause. We lost it because the North was superior, but our cause was just. And it, that lost cause involved essentially justifying slavery. And in order to justify slavery, you have to erase the individuality of the people who were enslaved. So the lost cause fed in perfectly to Jim Crow. If you're Wow. Erasing the individuality and the humanity of African Americans, if you are in newspapers and in plays and in books and in legislatures saying that, well, the Negroes loved slavery. And that's what people like Pollard and that's what people like Jefferson Davis said, that slavery had a Christianizing influence and it suited the Negro very well. So if you're pumping that kind of stuff out, it has a pretty powerful effect on the portion of the population, the majority, that you've empowered to make decisions. It means, well, if these Negroes, you know, don't really, if they need to be Christianized, and if they're barbarous, and if they're all of these things, they don't need to vote. So this idea of the Fifteenth Amendment, and even, you know, all of these various constitutional amendments, and all of these gains that they've made, and serving in legislatures, they don't belong there. They don't need it. So let's take it away from them. So those monuments are connected to that political project. So all of these symbols are part of that political and economic project. So you silence the voices of African Americans, sometimes by violence. You prohibit them or erect these tremendous barriers. You disenfranchise people by putting in... Uh, requirements, uh, literacy tests, poll taxes. Here in Virginia, one of the first laws that they passed in 1884 was to put the electoral process at the local level and county level in the hands of ex-Confederates. So how in the heck are are African Americans supposed to participate in civic life and in, in, in any kind of electoral process. And that is the kind of, that, that discrimination is the terrible gift, gift that keeps on giving. It kind of reinforces itself. And then you have this ideology on top of that saying that slavery was actually good. The Civil War was uh, just a misunderstanding between white brothers in the South and white brothers in the North. Oh. And we need to reunify in order to reclaim the labor of the African-American. So that's why we had discrimination up north and discrimination down south, out west, everywhere else, because it served the people who wanted to reclaim their, their, their dominion over black labor. You know, and when you couple that with there's a timeline on the Jim Crow Museum, there, and it's, folks, if you have not looked at that, uh, go to the Jim Crow Museum, and there's a timeline through— Reconstruction through Jim Crow, and all of these things play into when, quote-unquote, monuments and memorials were put up, why they were put up. And, and some people uh, from the 
Daughters of the American Confederacy. Is that the group that uh, I want to get my names? The UDC, the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Yes, and then there are the descendants of the uh, Confederate soldiers. I, I have I don't have my notes on that, but they, they the have sons even of Confederate veterans. Yes, they yeah. they have even stated that uh, they are wanting to rewrite history, and I have a couple quotes on that that, that I, yeah. I will find. And the the fact that you're trying to rewrite history that you know is already you're already have lost, but you want to rewrite it for your favor and to keep a a, a whole group of people uh, subordinated to you and go on like nothing has happened is really unconscionable. It's it's it, and it, I don't think people realize today that that happened. I don't because because that was a national project. It it didn't as as I said it it didn't just happen in the south. I think that Correct. You know, the Civil War was a, tr- a tremendous calamity, and I think, uh, you know, fatigue and, frankly, latent racism in the North and other parts of the country meant that people were really ready to chuck any claims that African Americans had to first-class citizenship. Not everybody, but plenty of people were ready to say, okay, we did our part. Uh, let those Negroes fend for themselves and get back to work on the farms and get back to work in our factories. So wow. the racism of the South uh, went hand in hand with the racism of the North and resulted in the end of Reconstruction and what they called in the South redemption, which was this long process that began with the, the, the clawing back of the dominance that they had. And Again, this was a program that just wasn't done by changing laws. It was done by intimidating people at the polling booth. It was done by um, uh, attacking, killing people who deigned to try and exercise their right to vote. Uh, And if you suppress a vote, then you can pass policies that you want. So it's this kind of very interesting dovetailing of violence and uh, legislative processes which is kind of devastating. So it was, you know, this was, this was a national project. You know, and, and it seems like a lot of that stuff became institutionalized, and, and I make this comment uh, and, and statement to you, Brian, and, and Mark, that some people think this stuff happened accidentally, or, oh, gee, this is just kind of coincidence. There's no, I, I don't want to say that there was... Yeah, some grand theme or scheme, or this, I'm not a conspiracy theorist on this, but when historic preservation law protects these things, and they have been, what I would say, slipped into the historic preservation law, uh, either federally or in states, states changed, as of just a, a few years ago, changed their laws on bringing monuments down. And right. many local jurisdictions cannot take care of things because they are bound by state law or they're bound by federal law based upon that. Uh, so I'm sure you, you kind of discovered that in part of your research, too. Well, yes, and, and that, that's the thing. So any law, whether it's unfair or fair, is very difficult to overturn. And a, whole, a host of unfair laws that provided preferential treatment to these sites were on the books. So that kind of creates a momentum that's beyond reason. It's just because it's on the books. It's the status quo. So those additional laws in Alabama and various places could be added to, to protect these sites, but they had to do it through some sophistry. So it wasn't just Confederate monuments. It was war memorials and things like that. So one of the 
you can't right. begin to attack that logic if you don't understand how the monuments got there in the first place. And that's why I go back to this, this truth, that these monuments were erected as part of an anti-democratic process, and therefore they did not go up democratically. I'll give you an example. The Robert E. Lee monument that's being so robustly graffitied or recontextualized here in Virginia went up in 1890. We had an African-American uh, member of the Common Council who was also a newspaper editor, John Mitchell, Jr., when he served on the Common Council, a measure came across his desk that said, we're going to give money to that monument. He refused to vote yes on that. He was in the minority, but he refused to uh -huh. vote yes. And he also wrote an op-ed. He went out onto the street where all these drunken ex-Confederates were celebrating the erection of this monument and a Confederate reunion. He observed, and he went back to his desk, and he said that, this is a mistake. This is glorification of states' rights doctrine, and it will bequeath us uh, a legacy of treason and blood. This is a black man who had been born enslaved writing this. So that resistance didn't happen in 2020 or 2019. That resistance goes back 130 years. It's just that Mitchell risked lynching to do that. Others maybe grumbled silently, but he stepped up and risked lynching in order to say, this is a travesty. But he said something else that was interesting. He said that black people put the monument up, and black people will be the ones who take it down. Hmm. Boy, wow. that was prophetic. Yep. John Very Mitchell, good. Jr., editor of the Richmond Planet. You can get it on um, at the Library of Congress in digitized form. That op-ed is... Um, May 31st, 1890, this is op-ed about the Lee Monument and the, um, the Negro putting the monument up and taking it down, I think is an earlier um, paper, but I don't have that date handy. You know, I want to read something from uh, an, an article that you wrote, Still Funding the Confederacy, from March 26th of 2019. Uh, you write that, In 1902, an all-white male convention pushed through a new Virginia constitution that placed additional restrictions, literacy tests, and a poll tax on African Americans' voting rights. African American political power evaporated. The constitutional convention's goal, State Senator Carter Glass announced at that time, was to, quote, to eliminate the darkie as a political factor in this state, unquote, and ensure, quote, the complete supremacy of the white race in the affairs of government, unquote. And then later on, at the dedication of the lane of the cornerstone for the monument honoring Confederate President Jefferson Davis, a former Confederate General Bradley T. Johnson told a crowd in 1896, the great crime of the century was the emancipation of the Negroes. Now, here's the problem that I see, Brian, because when I did history in school and learned that, the thing that I learned, and, and this, is, this is the influence of, of, of the lie and the mythology of, of, of history, that we need to get to the facts. And those facts are what you talked about, the, the lost cause is, is lost frankly, and it was wrong. But I learned, well, the cause of the Civil War was states' rights, and, and it was, right. it was a, a financial kind of thing. And Mark, Mark and I went to a, a similar school, and Mark, I don't know if that's what you learned, but um, you know, un until several, several years ago did it really become evident, it was all about slavery. That's what it was all about. You know, you can call it whatever you're going to call it, but that's what it was about. Right. So it was the, 
the state's sure. rights to own slaves. I mean, that's, and if you read the Constitution of the Confederate States of America, it, it makes it very clear. Again, I think this is, so this is a problem of the status quo, and I am, I think I'm probably older than you. I'm, I'm 55, and I went to uh, public elementary schools and various schools. We got you uh, beat. We, I, I turn 64 next week. <laughs> oh, excellent. So, so, so y'all know better than and I I'm do. I'm even older than him. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, I thought I was talking to youngins. You sound so young. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but we so we when, look good. We look young. I don't doubt it. We have faces um, for radio. Okay. <laughs> That's it. But, so right, when, here we go. <laughs> when, when we were getting schooled, there was already scholarship out there that spoke to these truths. You had W.E.B. Du Bois, you had John Hope Franklin, and then when I was in school, uh, books by Ira Berlin that just dredged up tremendous amounts of evidence, documents that spoke to how African Americans worked to liberate them, to emancipate themselves. And yet, that material still hasn't trickled in, trickled down, uh, suffused our public school curricula across the country. When I was in school, and I think when you old guys <laughs> were, were in school, we had, <laughs> we had, sorry about that, we had good and solid Be evidence. Be nice to your elders, research. Brian. <laughs> I know, I, I'm sorry. Um, but okay. there was real scholarship then. There was good, real evidence-based scholarship that gave the lie to the gone with the wind, uh, you know, kind of approach uh, to that, that has really infused our view of American history. But I think there were enough people who felt judged by that, for example, that it was just easier not to deal with it and just to stick with the old narrative of uh, you know, the lost cause. And it, it fit with another narrative, frankly, that... Uh, the people who made America were these. Sorry about that. The um, the it that that lost lost cause narrative, which had a number of great white men: Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, Stonewall Jackson, Jeb Stuart, all that. The P.T. Beauregard fit with another narrative of the great white men who built this country, and I think that's a that's that's a narrative that people have been challenging because it is a fictional narrative. It's it's not to say that there aren't great men. Uh, but not all of them, not all the great men are white, and not all of the great men are men. There are great people. And I think that the process of writing history was done by one group, and that became a self-reinforcing process, which made, you know, the stars after, well, great, of the great white men. And now you have people saying, hold on a second. If you go back into the record, if you go back into the evidence, if you go back into people's memories, you'll see that we have women and Native Americans and African Americans and Latinx people and Asian Pacific Islanders and queer people and all of these folks who did miraculous things. So, for example, my own great-grandparents, they were enslaved people in Virginia on my father's side. We learned, my wife and I learned, that they emancipated themselves. So Mm. when we're thinking about all the great white generals and presidents, I mean, where do these people fit in? And I would say prominently, not just those two people, but the half million enslaved people who liberated themselves before the end of the Civil War. They picked up 
got off those, those slave labor camps, which we call plantations, found their freedom and fought for it. So shouldn't that be threaded through school curriculum? Shouldn't it be threaded through that men and women a- aided the United States against the traitorous Confederate States of America? You had women growing food and serving as spies and, and, and nursing people to health and cooking food. And you had black folks. You had, you had 180,000-plus soldiers and sailors fighting for their own freedom. How... How revelatory is that? So, yeah, let's keep turning stuff on its ear, not because it's inconvenient or it offends our feelings. I'm not offended. My, my feelings aren't offended by some dude on a pedestal. I'm offended by the lie that it represents and Absolutely. the fact that it was put there to erase everybody else who fought that lie. Absolutely. You know, I, th- I think what, what you just said wow. has to be wow. <laughs> really broadcast and discussed and chewed in people's brains. They need they need to chew over exactly yep. what you just said because it yep. we, we have a whole history that has been ignored for a long time and my words it's always been shelved after all these incidents that that yeah. bring this up to the surface what happens is it is it gets shelved again and nothing ever gets done yep. with it. Yep. Yep. And that's why we're continuing to have this conversation because it's important to reveal and to pull back and shed light on things that have gone on. And, you know, our guest who's going to be talking in the next hour, uh, it's, it's a previous recording, but he mentioned, he said, you know, we've, we've always made the villains and the good guys out of, out of history. And he says that's not necessarily the way history should be viewed, you know, that this, these people were, think, were wonderful and these people were horrible. I think that that is a marvelous way to think about things. And I think that there's also something else Another way to think about things that are shaped, that's, that's evolving right now, I think one of the things that people, one of the reasons that Confederate monuments are becoming these targets of demonstrator ire is because they do represent those lies. And what I see developing in these movements is multiracial, multigender, multi everything. And it's not just about attacking. These people are discovering the power of history. So what if a curriculum or an individual could consider the story of an enslaved person emancipating herself, not just to Harriet Tubman, but connecting that individual to an entire movement off the plantation? Mm. That's something that white people, Latinx people can own together. What if we were able to understand that in the context of uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act and Asian Pacific Islanders coming to this country? You know, there's this beautiful series on PBS called The Asian Americans. And I just, I, I, I learned things that make me feel so much more American because the story is about all of us. The power that we all um, used exhibited to define what America means, not just to us, but to everybody. Think about that. If we could accept that America is all of us, we could own all of these stories so beautifully. Oh, yeah. Boy, you give me chills when you say that. (laughs) Uh, Sorry. America is, America is is so, what a wonderful idea America was when it started. (laughs) Really was. 
Where do you I think... Think about that, though. I mean, what are we afraid of? Are we afraid... That's a really are we great afraid question. Of saying, yeah, I mean... It is. Are, if what happens after we admit that there was genocide against indigenous people? Well, if we can admit that, then we can put everything else on the table. We can say, okay, that, that, that this country, this government was born in that barbarity and brutality. But if we can say that, we can come clean in the same way that other countries have done that and build from there and say, how did those people try to resist? How, what did these people build in spite of that? They're individuals, and there are movements, and we can understand that if we're not afraid of them. But in order to lose that fear, you have to accept that that wrong, that that deep foundational wrong, those wrongs were done. That's the, that's the truth in truth and reconciliation. Without that truth, you can't have any reconciliation because you're always trying to hide behind the thing that scares you the most. Well, you know how difficult it is for people to admit that they are wrong, let alone admit yeah. that the history that they've learned is not complete and is not completely uh, lit up. In other words, to view all of it rather than just view sections of it. Exactly. But then maybe that's why we should take take some heart and maybe listen to some of the youth who, who, who seem to understand this instinctively. I mean, why, why is it that, that, that George Floyd has mattered to so many people who are not black? Why is that? Because they could recognize his humanity. Right? Right. So, Absolutely. Is that a, yeah. It's a place to start, right? Mm-hmm. That's why the conversations need to continue and not just be conversations because I've seen that happen in the past too. We'll talk about something until people finally either get tired of talking about it or just dies down. And then then it ends up on the shelf again until the next, my words, crisis occurs. And we're like, oh my, I thought we dealt with this. Didn't we talk about that? And and what I think a lot of white people don't understand is talking about it is not solving the issue. Acknowledgement no, no. is just the first part of of right. the problem. It's kind of like uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I am an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic, folks, but I'm saying that's that's the step. I'm I'm an alcoholic. You know, acknowledgement of of that fact, and then you can move forward. And I think we're we're still coming to grips with acknowledging because you can see even on the news every single day that there's this conflict of people saying no, that's not right, or there's this fight about keeping these monuments and memorials up and why they think they should continue to stay up. I often think of, of how people view what's going on in Richmond at the Robert E. Lee statue and what people would call the defacing of the statue. And I thought you had a very good comment or uh, the first part of the interview about what people were actually doing. They were, um, uh, I, I didn't write it down, but they were reinscribing it. What was that? Even I said re- recontextualizing, but I like reinscribing better. And uh, about what what it is, and I didn't realize that that particular monument it it just stands out in the middle of this great circle of grass, and it's like holy cow, you can't miss the thing. It's and it's like this is the predominant thing of who we are, uh, and and how in your face. And until enough people, I, I agree with you, get on board and understand what that has done, and 
where we have totally missed the boat on this, the laws will not be changed. I, I guess I have a, one more question that wh- where are we going from here? Other than changing the laws and trying to change people's hearts and keeping this out in the forefront, where do we go from here? I can answer that in by going back to your observation of the reinscribing of these monuments. So you look at the base of the monument and you see all sorts of sentiments, some of them profoundly negative and others uh, wonderfully positive, that we should remember people who have been killed uh, through police brutality, so on and so forth. But what people beyond Richmond, people in St. Louis or in, in, in Los Angeles or wherever might not understand, is that circle around the Robert E. Lee Monument, known as Lee Circle, has been dubbed Marcus David Peters Circle by some of the demonstrators. There's a lovely sign out there. Marcus Davis Peters, David Peters, uh, was an African-American man. He was a teacher. And about a year and a half ago, he was killed by police uh, in the middle of a mental health episode. That is one new addition that space. The other new addition is black people, white people, people who never deigned to step in that circle because it wasn't for them. It was not their space. I remember the first time I saw that circle was in January 2013, and it was, you know, there were a few Confederate reenactors there. Yesterday, the day before, the day before that, you had people, black people, white people, Asian people, barbecuing and, and getting their pictures, they have, people have taken that space and re-inscribed and reinterpreted. So it's not all about F the police. It is about, this is our space now. So when we talk about defacing and breaking laws, I think we do have to step back and look at the historic context. The fact that that monument was imposed on a huge portion of the city's population through implied violence. Now people are doing something different with that space. So what is it going forward? Well, what I'm hoping is that those people who gather in that circle, and they're probably there right now, they will be the ones to say, hold on a second. We have the power to say we want a more honest version of history. And maybe they can sway other folks around them. Because, again, this is not just black folks. We have a whole lot of white folks. And if you look at the people getting arrested, <laughs> they're, from what I've seen you know, for the demonstrations, there are a lot of white kids there. So I hope that through some of the, the friction that's happened, uh, that's, that's developing now, that, that we will have some light as well as heat. And I think that light is the ability to look at these sites for what they are and to see what they are displacing and what we should be embracing. I I appreciate you shedding light on that and and something that we need to embrace rather than shun. And it's time that we embraced our history, the good, the bad, and the ugly of what it was and who we are as a people, as a nation, and a nation not divided, but a nation that is united. And, you know, when it, when it comes down to, you know, I say something at the end of the show that says, you know, when the Martians invade, there's only one race, the human race. 
you know, when somebody needs a blood transfusion, they don't ask, well, is this coming from a black person, an Asian person, or uh, a Native American person, or a white person? Or if I need a heart transplant or a kidney transplant, you want to live. You're, you're thankful to get something to help you sustain your life. It's the same thing in everyday life. We need to help people sustain their lives as we interact mm-hmm. with them on a daily basis. And it doesn't okay. matter what they look like or how old they are or anything like that. Agreed. 100%. You have been a, a breath of fresh air in uh, reading the things <laughs> that you've written in listening to you and would love to do some future discussions with you uh, when your schedules allow. I know that you have been extremely busy, and I'm very, very grateful that you've taken time to talk with us today, Brian. Well, I am very, very happy that you allowed me to drop in virtually to your fair city. Uh, I am at your disposal going forward. Brian, thanks very much. We will continue to have some conversations about this. I appreciate your time today, sir. Thank you both. Have a great day. You. You too. Thank you, Brian.